Hello, everyone, and welcome to First Chapter Fridays with ACL, the podcast from the Augusta County Library. Each Friday, one of the Augusta County librarians will read the first chapter of a favorite book in different genres and age ranges, including middle age books for ages 8 to 12, YA books for teens, and fiction and nonfiction titles for adults. These might be titles you haven't had a chance to discover yet, and will be available through your local public libraries. This week, we are featuring The Hogfather by Terry Pratchett, a festive entry in Pratchett's humorous Discworld series. It's that time of year again, Hogs Watch Night. Tis the season to be jolly, to hang mistletoe and holly, and other stuff ending in ollie. Tis the season when the Hogfather himself dons his red suit and climbs in his sleigh pulled by, of course, eight hogs and brings gifts to all the boys and girls of Discworld. But this year, there's a problem. A stranger has taken the place of the Hogfather. Well, not exactly a stranger. He's actually pretty well known. He carries a scythe along with his bag of toys and he's going to slay everyone he sees tonight. Ho, ho, ho. Even the laugh is wrong. The switch has been arranged by the auditors, mysterious super beings who want our universe to be a collection of rocks swinging in the curves through space. Life is messy. Why not get rid of it? And who better than you-know-who? Somebody has to rescue the real hog father before this morbid imposter tracks suit on the world's carpets. It's up to Ankh Morpork's intellectual elite, the assembled wizards of Unseen University, with the help of a monster-bashing nanny and the world's worst inventor, plus a bona fide, honest god, god, the O-god of hangovers to be precise, to come up with a plan to save the universe. The Hogfather and other Discworld titles are for fans of Douglas Adams, Jasper Ford, and Pierce Anthony. This book is for adults and may contain language and situations for mature audiences. Everything starts somewhere, although many physicists disagree. But people have always been dimly aware of the problem with the start of things. They wonder aloud how the snowplow driver gets to work, or how the makers of dictionaries look up the spelling of the words. Yet there is the constant desire to find some point in the twisting, nodding, raveling nuts of space-time on which a metaphorical finger can be put to indicate that here, here, is the point where it all began. Something began when the Guild of Assassins enrolled Mr. Teatime, who saw things differently from other people. And one of the ways that he saw things differently from other people was in seeing other people as things. Later, Lord Downey of the Guild said, We took pity on him because he'd lost both parents at an early age. I think that, on reflection, we should have wondered a bit more about that. But it was much earlier even than that, when most people forgot that the very oldest stories are, sooner or later, about blood. Later on, they took the blood out to make the stories more acceptable to children, or at least to the people who had to read them to children, rather than the children themselves, who on the whole are quite keen on blood, provided it's being shed by the deserving. That is to say, those who deserve to shed blood. Or possibly night. You never quite know with some kids. And then wondered where the stories went. And earlier still, when something in the darkness of the deepest caves and gloomiest forests thought, what are they, these creatures? I will observe them. And much, much earlier than that, when the Discworld was formed, 
drifting onward through space atop four elephants on the shell of the giant turtle, Great Atuin. Possibly, as it moves, it gets tangled like a blind man in a cobbed webbed house in those highly specialized little space-time strands that try to breed in every history they encounter, stretching them and breaking them and tugging them into new shapes. Or possibly not, of course. The philosopher Dictus has summed up an alternative hypothesis as things just happen. What the hell? The senior wizards of Unseen University stood and looked at the door. There was no doubt that whoever had shut it wanted it to stay shut. Dozens of nails secured it to the door frame. Planks had been nailed right across, and finally it had, up until this morning, been hidden by a bookcase that had been put in front of it. And there's the sign, Ridkali, said the dean. You have read it, I assume. You know the sign that says, do not, under any circumstances, open this door? Of course I've read it, said Ridkali. Why'd you think I want it opened? Er, why, said the lecturer in recent rooms. To see why they wanted it shut, of course. This exchange contains almost all you need to know about human civilization, at least those bits of it that are now under the sea, fenced off, or still smoking. He gestured to Moto, the university's gardener, an odd job dwarf who was standing by with a crowbar. Get to it, lad! The gardener saluted. Right you are, sir. Against a background of splintering timber, Wrigley went on. It says on the plans that this is a bathroom. There's nothing frightening about a bathroom, for God's sakes, I want a bathroom. I'm fed up with sluicing down with you fellas. It's unhygienic. You can catch stuff. My father told me that. Where you get lots of people bathing together, the Veruca gnome is running around with his little sack. Is that like the tooth fairy? Said the dean sarcastically. I'm in charge here and I want a bathroom of my own, said Ridkali firmly. And that's all there is to it, all right. I want a bathroom in time for hog pot tonight, understand? And that's a problem with beginnings, of course. Sometimes, when you're dealing with occult realms that have a quite different attitude to time, you get the effect a little way before the calls. From somewhere on the edge of hearing came a gling 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 noise, like little silver bells. At about the same time as the Arch-Chancellor was laying down the law, Susan Stolholite was sitting up in bed, reading by candlelight. Frost patterns curled across the windows. She enjoyed these early evenings. Once she had put the children to bed, she was more or less left to herself. Mrs. Gator was pathetically scared of giving her any instructions, even though she paid Susan's wages. Not that the wages were important, of course. What was important was that she was being her own person and holding down a real job. And being a governess was a real job. The only tricky bit had been the embarrassment when her employer found out that she was a duchess, because in Mrs. Gator's book, which was a rather short book with big handwriting, the upper crust wasn't supposed to work. It was supposed to loaf around. It was all Susan could do to stop her curtsying when they met. A flicker made her head turn. The candle flame was streaming out horizontally, as though in a howling wind. She looked up. The curtains billowed away from the window, which flung itself open with a clatter, but there was no wind. At least, no wind in this world. Images formed in her mind, a red ball, the sharp smell of snow, and then they were gone. And instead, there were... Teeth, said Susan aloud. Teeth again? She blinked. When she opened her eyes, the window was, as she knew it would be, firmly shut. The curtain hung demurely. The candle flame was innocently upright. Oh no, 
Not again. Not after all this time. Everything had been going so well. Thuzin? She looked around. Her door had been pushed open, and a small figure stood there, barefoot in a nightdress. She sighed. Yes, Twyla? I'm afraid of the monster in the cellar, Thuzin. It's going to eat me up. Susan shut her book firmly and raised a warning finger. What have I told you about trying to sound ingratiatingly cute, Twyla, she said. The little girl said, you said I mustn't. You said that exaggerated lisping is a hanging offense, and I only do it to get attention. Good. Do you know what monster it is this time? It's the big hairy one with... Susan raised the finger again. Uh, she warned. With eight arms, Twyla corrected herself. What? Again? Oh, all right. She got out of bed and put on her dressing gown, trying to stay quite calm while the child watched her. So they were coming back. Oh, not the monster in the cellar. That was all in a day's work. But it looked as if she was going to start remembering the future again. She shook her head. However far you ran away, you always caught yourself up. But monsters were easy, at least. She'd learned how to deal with monsters. She picked up the poker from the nursery fender and went down the back stairs, with Twyla following her. The gators were having a dinner party. Muffled voices came from the direction of the dining room. Then, as she crept past, a door opened and a yellow light spilled out and a voice said, Ye gods, there's a girl in a nightshirt out here with poker. She saw figures silhouetted in the light and made out the worried face of Mrs. Gator. Susan, uh, what are you doing? Susan looked at the poker and then back at the woman. Twyla said she's afraid of a monster in the cellar, Mrs. Gator. And you're going to attack it with a poker, eh? Said one of the guests. There was a strong atmosphere of brandy and cigars. Yes, said Susan simply. Eh, Susan's our governess, said Mrs. Gator. Er, I told you about her. There was a change in the expression on the faces peering out from the dining room. It became a sort of amused respect. She beats up monsters with a poker, said someone. Actually, that's a very clever idea, said someone else. Little gal gets it into her head. There's a monster in the cellar. You ain't go in with the poker and make a few bashing noises while the child listens, and then everything's all right. Good thinking, that gal. Very sensible. Very modern. Is that what you're doing, Susan? Said Mrs. Gator anxiously. Yes, Mrs. Gator, said Susan obediently. This I've got to watch, bio. It's not every day you see monsters beaten up by a gal, said the man behind her. There was a swish of silk and a cloud of cigar smoke as the diners poured out into the hall. Susan sighed again and went down the cellar stairs, while Twyla sat demurely at the top, hugging her knees. A door opened and shut. There was a short period of silence and then a terrifying scream. One woman fainted and a man dropped his cigar. You don't have to worry. Everything will be all right, said Twyla calmly. She always wins. Everything will be all right. There were thuds and clangs, and then a whirling noise, and finally a sort of bubbling. Susan pushed open the door. Poker was bent at right angles. There was a nervous applause. Very well done, said a guest. Very psychological. Clever idea, that bend in the poker. And I expect you're not afraid anymore, eh, little girl? No, said Twyla. Very psychological. Susan says don't get afraid. Get angry, said Twyla. Er, thank you, Susan, said Mrs. Gator, now a trembling bouquet of nerves. And er, now, Sir Joffrey, if you'd all like to come back into the parlor, I mean the drawing room. The 
party went back up the hall, the last thing Susan heard before the door shut was Dash convincing the way she bent the poker like that. She waited. Have they all gone, Twyla? Yes, Susan. Good. Susan went back into the cellar and emerged towing something large and hairy with eight legs. She managed to haul it up the steps and down the other passage to the backyard, where she kicked it out. It would evaporate before dawn. That's what we do to monsters, she said. Twyla watched carefully. And now it's to bed for you, my girl, said Susan, picking her up. Can I have the poker in my room for the night? All right. It only kills monsters, doesn't it? The child said sleepily as Susan carried her upstairs. That's right, Susan said. All kinds. Susan put the girl to bed next to her brother and leaned the poker against the toy cupboard. The poker was made out of some cheap metal with a brass knob on the end. She would, Susan reflected, give quite a lot to be able to use it on the children's previous governess. Good night. Good night. She went back to her own small bedroom and got back into bed, watching the curtains suspiciously. It would be nice to think she had imagined it. It would also be stupid to think that, too. But she'd been nearly normal for two years now, making her own way in the real world, never remembering the future at all. Perhaps she had just dreamed things, but even dreams could be real. She tried to ignore the long thread of wax that suggested the candle had, just for a few seconds, streamed in the wind. As Susan sought sleep, Lord Downey sat in his study, catching up on the paperwork. Lord Downey was an assassin, or rather, an assassin. The capital letter was important. It separated those curs who went around murdering people for money from the gentlemen who were occasionally consulted by other gentlemen who wished to have removed for consideration any inconvenient razor blades from the candy floss of life. The members of the Guild of Assassins considered themselves cultured men who enjoyed good music and food and literature, and they knew the value of human life, to a penny in many cases. Lord Downey's study was oak-paneled and well-carpeted. The furniture was very old and quite worn, but the wear was the wear that comes only when very good furniture is carefully used over several centuries. It was matured furniture. A log fire burned in the grate. In front of it, a couple of dogs were sleeping in the tangled way of large hairy dogs everywhere. Apart from the occasional doggy snore or the crackle of a shifting log, there were no other sounds but the scratching of Lord Downey's pen and the ticking of the grandfather clock by the door. Small, private noises, which only served to define the silence. At least, this was the case until someone cleared their throat. The sound suggested very clearly that the purpose of the exercise was not to erase the presence of a troublesome bit of biscuit, but merely to indicate in the politest way possible the presence of the throat. Downey stopped writing, but did not raise his head. Then, after what appeared to be some consideration, he said in a business-like voice, The doors are locked. The windows are barred. The dogs do not appear to have woken up. The squeaky floorboards haven't. Other little arrangements, which I will not specify, seem to have been bypassed. That severely limits the possibilities. I really doubt that you are a ghost, and gods generally do not announce themselves so politely. You could, of course, be deaf, but I don't believe he bothers with, with such niceties, and besides, I am feeling quite well. Hmm. Something hovered in the air in front of his desk. My teeth are in fine condition, so you are unlikely to be the tooth fairy. I've always found that a stiff brandy before bedtime quite does away with the need for the Sandman. 
and since I can carry a tune quite well, I suspect I'm not likely to attract the attention of old man trouble. Hmm. The figure drifted a little nearer. I suppose a gnome could get through a mouse hole, but I have traps down, Downey went on. Boogeymen can walk through walls, but we'd be very low to reveal themselves. Really, you have me at a loss. Hmm. And then he looked up. A gray robe hung in the air. It appeared to be occupied, in that it had a shape, although the occupant was not visible. The prickly feeling crept over Downey that the occupant wasn't invisible, merely not, in any physical sense, there at all. Good evening, he said. The robe said, Good evening, Lord Downey. His brain registered the words. His ears swore they hadn't heard them. But you did not become the head of the Assassin's Guild by taking fright easily. Besides, the thing wasn't frightening. It was, thought Downey, astonishingly dull. If monotonous drabness could take on a shape, this would be the shape it would choose. You appear to be a specter, he said. Our nature is not a matter for discussion, arrived in his head. We offer you a commission. You wish someone in whom, said Downey, brought to an end. Downey considered this. It was not unusual as it appeared. There were precedents. Anyone could buy the services of the guild. Several zombies had, in the past, employed the guild to settle scores with their murderers. In fact, the guild, he liked to think, practiced the ultimate democracy. You didn't need intelligence, social position, beauty, or charms to hire it. You just needed money, which, unlike the other stuff, was available to everyone. Except for the poor, of course. But there was no helping some people. Brought to an end. That was an odd way of putting it. We can, he began. The payment will reflect the difficulty of the task. Our scale of fees, the payment will be three million dollars. Downey sat back. That was four times higher than any fees yet earned by any member of the guild. And that had been a special family rate, including overnight guests. No questions asked, I assume, he said, buying time. No questions answered. But does the suggested fee represent the difficulty involved? The client is heavily guarded. Not guarded at all, but almost certainly impossible to delete with conventional weapons. Downey nodded. This is not necessarily a big problem, he said to himself. The guild had amassed quite a few unconventional weapons over the years. Delete? In an unusual way of putting it. We like to know for whom we are working, he said. We are sure you do. I mean that we need to know your name, or names, and strict client confidentiality, of course. We have to write something down in our files. You may think of us as the auditors. Really? What is it that you audit? Everything. I think we need to know something about you. We are the people with three million dollars. Downey took the point, although he didn't like it. Three million dollars could buy a lot of no questions. Really, he said, in the circumstances, since you are a new client, I think we would like payment in advance, as you wish. The gold is now in your vaults. You mean it will shortly be in our vaults, said Downey. No, it has always been in your vaults. We know this because we just put it there. Downey watched the empty hood for a moment, and then without shifting his gaze, he reached out and picked up the speaking tube. Mr. Winbow, he said, after whistling into it. Ah, good. Tell me, how much do we have in our vaults at the moment? Oh, approximately, to the merest million, say. He held the tube away from his ear for a moment and then spoke into it again. Well, be a good chap and check anyway, will you? 
He hung up the tube and placed his hands flat on the desk in front of him. Can I offer you a drink while we wait? He said. Yes, we believe so. Downey stood up with some relief and walked over to his large drinks cabinet. His hand hovered over the guild's ancient and valuable tantalus, which, with its labeled decanters of myrrh, nig, trop, and yexavid. It's a sad and terrible thing that highborn folk really have thought that the servants would be totally fooled if spirits were put into canters that were cunningly labeled backward. And also, throughout history, that more politically con- conscious butler had taken it on trust, and with rather more justification, that his employers will not notice if the whiskey is top up with in room. And what would you like to drink, he said, wondering where the auditor kept its mouth. His hand hovered for just a moment over the smallest decanter, marked no sop. We do not drink. But you did just say I could offer you a drink. Indeed. We judge you fully capable of performing that action. Ah. Downey's hand hesitated over the whiskey decanter, and then he thought better of it. At that point, the speaking tube whistled. Yes, Mr. Wimbo? Really? Indeed. I myself have frequently found loose change under the sofa cushions. It's amazing how it... Well, no, no, I wasn't being... Yes, I did have some reason to... No, no. Blame attaches to you and any... No, I would hardly see it how it... Yes, go and have a rest. What a good idea. Thank you. He hung up the tube again. The cow hadn't moved. We will need to know where, when, and of course, who, he said after a moment. The cow nodded. The location is not on any map. We would like the task to be completed within the week. This is essential. As for the who, a drawing appeared on Downey's desk, and in his head arrived the words, Let us call him the fat man. Is this a joke, said Downey? We do not joke. No, you don't, do you, Downey thought. He drummed his fingers. There are many who would say this person does not exist, he said. He must exist. How else could you so readily recognize his picture? And many are in correspondence with him. Well, yes, of course, in a sense he exists. In a sense, everything exists. It is the station of existence that concerns us here. Finding him would be a little difficult. You will find persons on any street who can tell you his approximate address. Yes, of course, said Downey, wondering why anyone would call them persons. It was an odd usage. But as you say, I doubt that they could give a map reference, and even then, how could the the fat man be inhumed? A glass of poisoned sherry, perhaps? The cow had no ma- face to crack a smile. You misunderstand the nature of employment, it said in Downey's head. He bridled at this. Assassins were never employed. They were engaged, or retained, or commissioned, but never employed. Only servants were employed. What is it that I misunderstand exactly, he said. We pay. You find the ways and means. The cow began began to fade. How can I contact you, said Downey. We will contact you. We know where you are. We know where everyone is. The figure vanished. At the same moment, the door was flung open to reveal the distraught figure of Mr. Winville, the guild treasurer. Excuse me, my lord, but I really had to come up. He flung some discs on the desk. Look at them. Downey carefully picked up a golden circle. It looked like a small coin, but no denomination, said Winville. No heads, no tails, no milling. It's just a blank disc. They're all just blank discs. Downey opened his mouth to say, valueless? He realized that he was half hoping that this would be the case. 
If they, whoever they were, had paid in worthless metal, then there wasn't even the glimmering of a contract. But he could see this wasn't the case. Assassins learned to recognize money early in their careers. Blank discs, he said, of pure gold. Winvo nodded mutely. That, said Downey, will do nicely. It must be magical, said Winvo, and we never accept magical money. Downey bounced the coin on the desk a couple of times. It made a satisfyingly rich thunking noise. It wasn't magical. Magical money would look real, but its whole purpose was to deceive, and this didn't need to ape something as human and adulterated as mere currency. This is gold, it told his fingers. Take it or leave it. Downey sat and thought while Winvo stood and worried. We'll take it, he said, but thank you, Mr. Winvo. That is my decision, said Downey. He stared into his face for a while and then smiled. Is Mr. Tea Time still in the building? Winvo stood back. I thought the council had agreed to dismiss him, he said stiffly. After that business with Mr. Tea Time does not see the world in quite the same way as other people, said Downey picking up the picture from his desk and looking at it thoughtfully. Well, indeed, I think that is certainly true. Please send him up. The guild attracted all sorts of people, Downey reflected. He found himself wondering how it come, had come to attract Winvo, for one thing. It was hard to imagine him sta stabbing anyone in the heart in case he got blood on the victim's wallet. Whereas Mr. Tea Time... The problem was that the guild took young boys and gave them a splendid education and incidentally taught them how to kill cleanly and dispassionately for money or for the good of society, or at least that part of society that had money, and what other kind of society was there. But very occasionally you found you'd got someone like Mr. Tea Time, to whom the money was merely a distraction. Mr. Tea Time had a truly brilliant mind, but it was brilliant like a fractured mirror, all marvelous facets and rainbows, but ultimately also something that was broken. Mr. Tea Time enjoyed himself too much, and other people also. Downey had privately decided that sometime soon Mr. Tea Time was going to meet with an accident. Like many people with no actual morals, Lord Downey did have standards, and Tea Time repelled him. Assassination was a careful game, usually played against people who knew the rules themselves, or at least could afford the services of those who did. There was considerable satisfaction in a clean kill. What there wasn't supposed to be was pleasure in a messy one. That sort of thing led to talk. On the other hand, Tea Time's corkscrew of a mind was exactly the tool to deal with something like this. And if he didn't, well, that was hardly Downey's fault, was it? He turned his attention to the paperwork for a while. It was amazing how the stuff mounted up. But you had to deal with it. It wasn't as though they were murderers, after all. There was a knock at the door. He pushed the paperwork aside and sat back. Come in, Mr. Tea Time, he said. It never hurt to put the other fellow slightly in all of you. In fact, the door was opened by one of the guild's servants, carefully balancing a tea tray. Ah, Carter, said Lord Downey, recovering magnificently. Just put it on the table over there, will you? Yes, sir, said Carter. He turned and nodded. Sorry, sir. I will go and fetch another cup directly, sir. What? For your visitor, sir. What visitor? Oh, when Mr. T. He stopped. He turned. There was a young man sitting on the hearth rug, playing with the dogs. Mr. T. Time! It's pronounced Te-a-tame, sir, said T. Time, with just a hint of reproach. Everyone gets it wrong, sir. 
How did you do that? Pretty well, sir. I got mildly scorched on the last few feet, of course. There were some lumps of soot on the hearth rug. Downey realized he had heard them fall, but that hadn't been particularly extraordinary. No one could get down the chimney. There was a heavy grid firmly in place near the top of the flue. But there's a blocked-in fireplace behind the old library, said Tia Time. Apparently, reading his thoughts, the flues connect under the bars. It was really a stroll, sir. Really? Oh, yes, sir. Downey nodded. The tendency of old buildings to be honeycombed with sealed chimney flues was a fact you learned early in your career. And then, he told himself, you forgot. It always paid to put the other, other fellow in all of you, too. He had forgotten they taught that, too. The dogs seem to like you, he said. I get on well with animals, sir. Tea Time's face was young and open and friendly, or at least it smiled all the time. But the effect was spoiled for most people by the fact that it only had one eye. Some unexplained accident had taken the other one, and the missing orb had been replaced by a ball of glass. The result was disconcerting. But what bothered Lord Downey far more was the man's other eye, the one that might loosely be called normal. He'd never seen such a small and sharp pupil. Tea Time looked at the world through a pinhole. He found he'd retreated behind his desk again. There was that about Tea Time. You always felt happier if you had something between you and him. You like animals, do you, he said. I have a report here that says you nailed Sir George's dog to the ceiling. Couldn't have it barking while I was working, sir. Some people would have drugged it. Oh. Tea Time looked despondent for a moment, but then he brightened. But I definitely fulfilled the contract, sir. There can be no doubt about that, sir. I checked Sir George's breathing with a mirror, as instructed. It's in my report. Yes, indeed. Apparently the man's head had been several feet from his body at that point. It was a terrible thought that Tea Time might see nothing incongruous about this. And the servants, he said? Couldn't have them bursting in, sir. Downey nodded, half hypnotized by the glassy stare in the pinhole eyeball. No, you couldn't have them bursting in. An assassin might well face serious professional opposition, possibly even by people trained by the same teachers. But an old man and a maidservant who'd merely had the misfortune to be in the house at the same time? There was no actual rule, Downey had to admit. It was just that over the years, the guild had developed a certain ethos, and members tended to be very neat about their work, even shutting doors behind them and generally tidying up as they went. Hurting the harmless was worse than a transgression, worse even than that. It was bad taste. But there was no actual rule. That was all right, wasn't it, sir? said Tea Time, with apparent anxiety. It, uh, lacked elegance, said Downey. Ah, thank you, sir. I'm always happy to be corrected. I shall remember that next time. Downey took a deep breath. It's about that I wish to talk, he said. He held up the picture of... What had the thing called him? The fat man? As a matter of interest, he said, how would you go about inhuming this gentleman? Anyone else, he was sure, would have burst out laughing. They would have said things like, is this a joke, sir? Tea Time merely leaned forward with a curious intent and expression. Difficult, sir. Certainly, Downey agreed. I would need some time to prepare a plan, sir. Tea Time went on. Of course, and there was a knock at the door, and Carter came in with another cup and saucer. 
He nodded respectively to Lord Downey and crept out again. Right, sir, said Tea Time. I'm sorry, said Downey, momentarily distracted. I have now thought of a plan, sir, said Tea Time patiently. You have? Yes, sir. As quickly as that? Yes, sir. Ye gods. Well, sir, you know we are encouraged to consider hypothetical problems. Oh, yes, a very valuable exercise. Downey stopped and then looked shocked. You mean you have actually devoted time to considering how to inhume the hog father? He said weakly. You've actually sat down and thought out how to do it? You've actually devoted your spare time to the problem? Oh, yes, sir. And the soul cake dock and the sandman and death. Downey blinked again. You've actually sat down and considered how to... Yes, sir. I've amassed quite an interesting file. In my own time, of course. I want to be quite certain about this, Mr. Teton. You have applied yourself to a study of ways of killing death. Only as a hobby, sir. Well, yes, hobbies, yes. I mean, I used to collect butterflies myself, said Downey, recalling those first moments of awakening pleasure at the use of poison in the pen. But actually, sir, the basic methodology is exactly the same as it would be for a human. Opportunity, geography, technique. You just have to work with the known facts about the individual concerned. Of course, with this one, such a lot is known. And you've worked it all out, have you, said Downey, almost fascinated. Oh, a long time ago, sir. When, may I ask? I think it was when I was laying in bed one hawk's watch night, sir. My gods, thought Downey, and to think I just used to listen for sleigh bells. My word, he said aloud. I may have to check some detail, sir. I'd appreciate access to some of the books in the dark library, but yes, I think I can see the basic shape. And yet, this person, some people might say that he is technically mortal. Everyone has their weak point, sir. Even death? Oh yes, absolutely, very much so. Really? Downey drummed his fingers on the desk again. The boy couldn't possibly have a real plan, he told himself. He certainly had a skewed mind. Skewed? It was a positive helix. But the fat man was just another target in some mansion somewhere. It was reasonable to assume that people had tried to trap him before. He felt happy about this. Tea time would fail, and possibly even fail fatally if his plan was stupid enough. And maybe the guild would lose the gold. But maybe not. Very well. I don't need to know what your plan is. That's just as well, sir. What do you mean? Because I don't propose to tell you, sir. You'd be obliged to just approve of it. I am amazed that you are so confident that it can work, Tea Time. I just think logically about the problem, sir, said the boy. He sounded reproachful. Logically, said Downey. I suppose I see things differently from other people. The Hogfather is available in print from your local libraries. Tune in next week for The Lost City of Z by acclaimed New Yorker writer David Grand, who sets out to solve the greatest exploration mystery of the 20th century. What happened to British explorer Percy Fawcett and his quest for The Lost City of Z? This episode of First Chapter Fridays was recorded by Adult Services Librarian Rachel. The Hogfather was written by Terry Pratchett and published by Harper Prism, a division of HarperCollins Publishers. Thanks for listening, and happy hogs watch, everybody!